We're back with another edition of the Federalist Radio Hour. I'm Emily Jashinsky, culture editor here at The Federalist. As always, you can email the show at radio at thefederalist.com. Follow us on Twitter at FDRLST. Make sure to subscribe wherever you download your podcasts as well. Today, I'm joined once again by Christopher Bedford, senior editor of The Federalist. Also, he's with RightForge. Chris, thanks for stopping by. Hey, thanks for having me again. So we want to talk right now about the Biden administration latching on, um, of course, for good reasons. We want the president to be paying uh, close attention and to be a leader on the world stage when it comes to the invasion of Ukraine. But it's clearly um, spawning some opportunism in the Biden administration. The president's approval rating when this conflict began was very low, historically low. He had a stalled domestic policy agenda. Inflation was high. It's now going to continue to get higher. Gas prices are through the roof. Um, And the president's approval ratings have ticked upward a little bit, as you would expect during a major conflict, a a literal land war in Europe. And I don't, I, I think it's clear Chris, that the Biden administration is using this and sees this as their way to um, buoying Biden during this midterm year, buoying the Democratic Party during this midterm year. And they are trying, the White House just today, pinned inflation on on Putin. And there's no question that we are going to be suffering some higher prices because of this conflict. Um, But this is opportunism. And they do see this as their ticket to higher approval ratings. Am I wrong? No, I think you're right. You see those stickers of Joe Biden pointing to say, I did that. You could attach the gas station pumps and everything. They're trying to completely change that and say, no, Putin did that. We didn't do that. It's the ultimate and boogeyman, the, the Putin thing. And, and, and if you just take a little step back to just maybe like two or three weeks ago, when Maria Bartiromo came out and said, we have doubled the amount of Russian oil and energy that we use in the last year. She was fact-checked false by PolitiFact, <laughs> even though we had doubled the amount in the previous year that we used from Russian oil, it was the PolitiFact said it's only 3%. So this is not going to have any impact. Now, I guarantee you, places like PolitiFact will say, well, fact check you wrong. If you say that Joe Biden's causing rising gas prices, they'll say false. That's Russia. Because it's just all partisan spin. The way that you read about this in the newspapers, if you pick up an article or watch a, a segment on CNN, pick up something in Washington Post, you're going to read about inflation. You're going to read about rising gas prices. And you probably will get zero indication that gas prices have been rising and inflation have been going right. on before Putin invaded Ukraine. It's just it's it's absolute preposterous boogeymanism and it's giving them an excuse for every single failure, which is massive that they have. I think one good way to think about it is that this is a, an enormous confounding variable that allows them to muddy the waters and pin the blame elsewhere, because how could you possibly disentangle um, the exact dollar amount of your gallon of gas that's related to Putin versus what's related to Biden? And so with this muddy water, they're now able, and that applies to supply at? chains, inflation, all of the stuff. They're now for the midterm, and we don't know how long this war is going to go on. We don't know what is going to happen with oil and gas and all of that. But um, we do know they now have this massive excuse when they go and they're going to rally around the flag. I imagine on the campaign trail, they're going to say, we are fighting Putin's gas hikes. We're fighting all of this. We're fighting for renewables, blah, blah, blah on the campaign trail. And they're they're going to see this as a huge, a huge give out to their handout to them with. I want to uh, introduce one caveat, Chris. I think they've already 
massively bungled the way they're talking about this in that you have these totally tone deaf. The White House just put out a tweet today about how in a, a future with renewable energy, we won't have to rely on Putin and we won't be at the behest of, of uh, dictators like Putin. And it's just like, what are you talking about? What, who do you <laughs> think powers... What do, what do you think powers the electricity that goes into the cars? <laughs> Coal. <laughs> yeah, oil. <laughs> Thomas Massey Natural tweeted. Gas, hydro. Had, Massey tweeted a picture of him filling up his, well, filling up, but uh, charging his Tesla. And he said, uh, putting some Virginia. coal in my Tesla. <laughs> <laughs> some dinosaur bone. So funny. Uh, the, the Democrats and the left in general are, are really expert at muddying the waters. They're always trying to say. Uh, that that their tax policies don't have an impact on business, that their regulatory policies don't have an impact on business, um, that the future, there's always these green jobs right around the corner, which, of course, have never come. There's right. just millions of green jobs. I mean, Barack Obama ran on green jobs twice, and Hillary Clinton ran on the coming green jobs, and Joe Biden is now running on the coming green jobs, and he's going to do it again. So they're always in the future. Well, but, they're coming, if not for Republican obstructionism, right? Oh, yeah, like they right. haven't arrived because of Republican <laughs> obstructionism and because of big business. The, uh, they're exactly right. There are very few Democratic policies that have gone disastrously that you can really directly link back to them because these are large societal impacts. Mm. And I think it's common sense to link it back, but they can muddy the water, really with the exception of defund the police. <laughs> Which is that, like, <laughs> yeah. Um, like, yeah, we don't fund the police anymore. Crime spikes massively. That's basically the only one that they can't lie about. They can't just obfuscate. Although now they're pretending that it's just out of the State of the Union, that they are actually the party of funding the police. <laughs> and we and with, the energy, <laughs> with the energy crisis, I got, a, I got a text message from a former Republican friend of mine, like one of those people who just went really crazy when uh, Donald Trump won the nomination. And he was saying, why do you think that why did the Daily Caller post this Peter Ducey versus Jen Psaki on the oil wells clip? She schooled him. And <laughs> one, that's not true. But if you watch it, it's a clip where Peter Ducey is asking Jen Psaki, yo, there's got to be something to get our gas prices down before, like, the future is green. Something we could do right now. Right. What about Keystone? What about the wells? And she flat out lied and said that we are producing more oil than in previous years mm -hmm. in the United States. It's not true. And she said, this is like a, this is a classic muddying of the waters obfuscation kind of thing. Well, we have all these thousands and thousands of leases that are open and unused. And the thing, talking to some oil guys after that, I was like, well, explain this to me. They were telling me that these are leases that are one-year leases and unusable land. And mm -hmm. land that's not very profitable or is difficult or doesn't have access to the things they need. They're basically the last leases that anyone would want. They're not even for three, the three years that you would, you really need a three-year guarantee for the capital investment that you're going to do. So they, could, they can go out there and say, we have all these leases. People just won't take advantage of them. And it's a massive gaslighting of American people with a press that's just completely disinterested in following up on it. Well, and even if it were true, it's a logical fallacy, right, to say just because we are uh, we have the most American oil that we ever had, that doesn't mean that there isn't plenty more to be had um, and that there isn't you know a way to continue bringing prices down. It's not just it, they act as though they're maxing it out. Um, and that's sort of the implication there, which is clearly not the case. And Chris, I have to also ask you about the absurd. It's like journalists and the administration are both 
uh, pimping electric vehicles right now to a a disastrous, I think, messaging effect in that they act as though the the middle average middle class American should just switch over to an electric vehicle and stop complaining. Take that to kickboxing class. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Margarita's kickboxing Tesla. <laughs> <laughs> Although I, I will say, for my travels across the country, that a margarita is a fairly universal drink. You can find them in the worst <laughs> bars and the best bars. Uh, yeah, the electric car thing is a super elitist, super ridiculous to see Stephen Colbert, multi, multi, multi-millionaire saying, you know, you should drive electric, but honestly, it's worth it. Oh, to pay, gosh, to that pay was four, so bad. five dollars, six dollars a gallon at the pump. That's a sacrifice we must make for our morality. And it's like, hey, jerk, here, here's the problem with gas prices right now. Yeah. Just a few days ago, on Monday, I signed a contract to ship a truck across the country. <laughs> that contract was for like twenty one hundred bucks. Yeah. By the time that tr- like, I'm, I'm waiting in any moment for that contract to call and be canceled because mm-hmm. their price just went up fifty cents a gallon. Maybe not for diesel, but the the gasoline price was going up twenty five fifty cents a gallon. A friend of mine left his laptop in Delaware on Sunday accidentally at his family's home. Oh, wait, drive- is your friend Hunter Biden? <laughs> <laughs> No, it's Sean. Okay. Uh, <laughs> left it over with a repair guy. <laughs> the He had to drive back to go yeah, the next morning. The gas had got up 25 cents a gallon between Sunday and Monday. Ooh. It was like just this, these wild things. And the inflation that we're about to see, the unbelievable inflation, because you know, the 25 cents, 50 cents, a dollar, the biggest gas hike, price hike in American history that we're experiencing right now doesn't just impact our ability to pick up the kids at school, to go to work, to go out to eat, to go visit the family. It impacts every single product you see on every American shelf. Because, like, the truckers aren't wrong. Even if something was shipped on a, on a boat or was on an airplane or was on a train at some point, in order to get to the store shelf, it got on a truck. Right. Every single thing from a nail to, to a piece of bread to a piece of wood to a tire to a toy to a new car – was on a truck. Mm. And all of those things are going to be impacted by this. And it's it's just disastrous what we're in for. Every, every single person in, on this Thursday took an, on average, 8% pay cut because mm. of the level of inflation. And it's only going to get worse. It's probably in reality, like in, in car rentals, for example, or in house rentals, excuse me, in used cars, it's not 8%. It's like 30%, 40%, 50% inflation. So this price is going to be real, and you know that it's got to be serious to make me give a darn about fiscal issues. <laughs> no, it's absolutely true. And when you say the average American took a pay cut this week because of inflation, I think that's a really important way to look at it because it's inflation at the behest um, or being that's being held hostage to the radical cultural agenda of the left. And by the way, by electric um, boogie woogie woogie woogie. Yes, and a lot of people make a lot of money off of that agenda, and a lot of people who are very powerful make a lot of money off of that agenda. Um, And actually, as an aside, Chris, my little 1980 Honda Express, when COVID hit, um, I don't have a car because I live in the middle of the city and generally walk everywhere, bike everywhere. You can get everywhere you want. But I picked up this uh, bright yellow uh, 1980 Honda Express. (laughs) I love your vehicles. It's pretty cool. They're all amazing. Yes. And they're all um, they're all ill-fated and, and tragic in their own ways. But that's part of dating the gearhead. Yeah, yes. But this this particular little uh, Honda Express was released in the late '70s. Um, this was a model that. 
that Honda. During the gas Exactly, prices. exactly. And um, I bought it at the beginning of COVID, funny enough, not knowing that. Um, but if you go and do research on the bike, mine is a 1980 and it was, it was marketed to women in particular because it's easy to sort of run errands on. But because it gets like 80 to 100 miles per gallon, it just gets crazy mileage. And it's something that came out of the problems of the late 1970s and the, the early 80s when it came to our relationships in the Middle East and around the world. And it, it's interesting because right now there's this reshuffling, I think, in the international order um, where the United States has to seriously rethink its interest in China. Um, you see people, I mean, it was so easy. Um, and I was talking to Rebecca Heinrichs about this, actually. It's it was so easy for all of these uh, virtue signalers in business and in Hollywood to drop their business with Russia. And they won't do it with China, right? They'll, they'll drop their business with Russia. They won't do it with China because it's so much easier. There's so much less money to be made in Russia. But it is uh-huh. a good reminder of how entangled they are with oligarchs, how willing they have been to do business with them. Um, and in addition to what's going on with China. So Chris, do you think there's this moment is going to bear any fruit in terms of creating or bringing about a, a less corrupt or more secure, um, oh, I American think this is dangerous. You think so? I mean, I understand the, the point here. The point here is to make an example of Putin for China to watch. I think that's what some yeah. of the hawks are saying. Yeah. Look, you do, you, you invade Taiwan or you invade Ukraine. We destroy your economy. Right. We cut you off from the entire world. We try to cut you off from the internet, which I think is completely insane uh, to do that to a country. They're, now they're talking about the New York Times today. It was a bunch of internet experts were suggesting <laughs> setting up an international committee to to make it so that the government and the military of Russia has no access to the internet. It's like, well, how long until that is targeted to Israel or the United States if we do another stupid you know, Middle East adventure? The They're pulling out all these stops and... Countries around the world are looking at us. So, so maybe I see their point. Scare China and stop this war immediately. Collapse Russian economy. Cause desperation there. I think it's a dangerous beast to be playing with. But more importantly, when you're looking at the American dollar as a foreign country, and you suddenly realize they can just turn it off. Hmm. Your entire your, if your economy is now based on the American dollar and the American people decide that they want to because you invade a country that isn't America or not even an American a NATO ally, mm. that they will destroy your economy and cut off the dollar. I I would be extremely nervous if I was a foreign country looking at that and say, holy smokes, this is... That, so I, I'm just looking back now, already thinking that we're actually living in a bigger history than we expected to at the beginning of COVID. I agree with that. It's like this two-year plague, this sacrifice of the West, the massive inflation, war in Europe, the, the collapse of the international dollar, I think in a hundred years, if we're still reading history books in English, this is going to be a, a, a really cataclysmic series of events that just leads to, like, shoot, I thought the 2021 was going to be the better year than 2020. It turns out 2022 might actually be the worst of them all. Huge tech companies in America pay next to nothing in taxes, meaning they barely give anything back to the society that made them rich. They may not do a lot of giving, but they sure do a lot of taking. Ladies and gentlemen, I am talking about how these tech companies enrich themselves by taking your personal data. They grab your web history, email metadata, and video searches to create a detailed profile on you and then sell that off to the highest bidder. Companies aren't just selling products anymore. They are selling you. You have become the product. To protect your identity and data from these tech giants, I recommend using ExpressVPN every time you you go online. Think about all the websites you visit, Facebook, Twitter, Google, 
everything you do and say online is tracked by these giant corporations. Using your public IP address, they can uniquely match your activity and know your location. ExpressVPN makes you anonymous online by camouflaging your IP address and replacing it with a different secure IP of your choice. ExpressVPN also encrypts all of your data so that it's protected from hackers and anyone else that's trying to spy on you. And what I like most about ExpressVPN is how easy it is to use. Just download the app on your phone or computer, tap one button, and you're protected. So if you're like me and believe your internet data belongs to you and not to greedy corporations, then ExpressVPN is the answer. Protect your data with the number one rated VPN provider today. Visit expressvpn.com slash federalist to get three months free of a one-year package. That's E-X-P-R-E-S-S-V-P-N.com slash federalist. ExpressVPN.com slash federalist to learn more. Well, Madeline and I actually talked about this on the podcast earlier this week, that there's been this annual um, sort of pessimistic or optimistic um, end of year celebration where it's like, uh, let's get on with 2020. 2020 sucks. Let's get on with 2021. It's really been going on since 2016. Um, and every year consistently feels worse. I loved 2016. <laughs> yeah, I bet you did. Uh, <laughs> consistently. But there's no question. I mean, it was a, a very sort of painful uh, time for, for many people, whoever they we supported. We lost Harambe. We lost Harambe. And we still have not... None of this would have happened if Harambe were alive and you can't disprove that. Yeah. <laughs> but you no, know, I mean, obviously it was painful for a lot of people who, you know, had breaks in their family over something so stupid. Um, and you can just go on down the list. It was just a, it was a mess. Um, and it feels like it's getting worse every year. Yeah, it was the first, it was the first actually organized Republican resistance to the liberal order since Ronald Reagan. Brexit. And Brexit. Yeah. And all these different things just popping up. And they went absolutely mad, like literally unleashed the criminals on the cities, literally shut down the restaurants and shops, uh, destroyed their own economies, changed the entire media, like separated people from their dying families, closed churches. I mean, the whole world went the West went really nutty. So you just made a really interesting point about, I think there's this myopic um, evaluation of the COVID years as one that, you know, put virtual work at the forefront and closed office buildings and et cetera, et cetera. And of course, you know, people have thought about it in many different terms, but in this broad, you know, 30,000 foot view of human history, um, I'm really interested in what you just said, that this is sort of a bigger pivot than we realize. This is not just about virtual work. This is not just about um, American politics or cancel culture or social media. There's something much uh, larger afoot. And another thing we've been talking about on the podcast all week is how nuclear history is less than a century old. It's literally less than certain people's lifetimes. The biggest event in human history, the development of nuclear weapons, um, which, you know, put everybody at there are people fighting in ukraine right now or yep. at least pictures of them holding guns mm. who were alive when there was no nuclear weapons isn't that amazing yeah and i think it fits with your larger framework here that um and, and again our our realigning relationships with with russia and china um are very much this all very much has to do with nuclear technology and i think I don't think we're handling it particularly well, although I'm curious for your take on this. The the populist pushback to the the West's global neoliberal leadership, um, 
even Joe Biden, I think, has been fairly measured when it comes to Ukraine. And there does seem to be serious, um, a, a tempered blob in the Ukraine crisis, even if they're still, you know, but actually in, in hard some policy. ways. But they keep on putting up the idea that there would be American boots on the ground like it's a straw man. And then in the same breath, we'll say, but we should institute a no-fly zone. Yeah, it's but like I understand Kinsinger. the White House is pushed back in this, but don't they, like, they have to understand that the no-fly zone leading to boots on the ground. Decent chance. Well, remember like Kinsinger? Kinsinger being like, what's with all the breathlessness over nukes? <laughs> I mean, it's, it's, it's absolutely, it's wild to see people talking like this. And I mean, I think that a lot of it, has to do with media. And I'll give the New York Times credit for this. The New York Times has been doing some pretty phenomenal reporting on Ukraine. But you could sit glued to the TV like we were after 9-11 or we were at the beginning of Iraq um, or we were, we are kind of right now, glued to the TV watching CNN 24 hours. And you would have no idea what's going on yep. in this war. You'd have no idea what cities the Russians had just taken. You'd have no idea that Ukraine had just lost a port. You'd have no idea that the situation is becoming more and more and more untenable. That they're about seven to ten days away from running out of food in different areas of Ukraine. Mm. You'd have no idea that, like, you'd have no idea that they weren't winning. You'd basically be getting a freaking BuzzFeed article, like things that make you sad. Look at this awful family that choked me up seeing the little kid who were shot in the street mm. uh, or hit by a rocket. Look at this hospital that was killed. All the sad feelings and all the all the good feelings. Like, look at this warm-hearted priest. Look at this puppy Zelensky. dog in a war zone. Look at the yeah, and then the courageous ones. Look at this Zelensky up there fighting. Those, these are real human things, but and they're 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 all interesting stories, worthy of songs and worthy of like of human interest. But it's just feelings and emotives in place of reality. Mm. And that's all they're trafficking in. That's mm. so many of these news outlets, CNN, Fox News, all these other ones, just constant emotive in, interspersed with war hawks. And I think the average American has absolutely no idea that there's no shot Ukraine wins this for. Maybe they both lose. Mm-hmm. But Ukraine's not beating back the Russian invasion. Maybe Russia gets bogged down, Rupert collapses. It ends up being an absolute disaster for them. I think decently decent chance of that. But our entire media is just, just, just tickling our emo- emotional responses to get us to watch TV. And that's pretty twisted. Yeah, I think so far it, it seems as though nobody's really going to win. Um, and a lose-lose scenario is, is most likely. But what the hell does anybody know? I'll say, I wanted to ask you this question earlier, but this is a weirdly good segue into it. I'm thinking about the Stephen Colbert moment you just described, where this multi-multi-millionaire talks about how he's willing to make this sacrifice. And sanctimoniously talking about he's willing to make this sacrifice and uh, pay a little bit more in gas. Um, Otherwise, it's just supposed to be a comedy skit. Right, right, right. I mean, when he's doing comedy, uh, you know, when he used to do comedy, it was funny, but he's, he has uh, lost the plot for sure. Um, it, you know, it's such a, it's an interesting glimpse into the neoliberal worldview. And I don't think it's what you were talking to me. It was what you were talking about earlier and that you have this, this old friend who texted you to say like, why would the caller clip do um, just getting owned by Saki? They seem to be so detached from reality. And I, I say that, you know, knowing that partisanship does that to people on both sides of the spectrum. But when you have, have demonized everybody that disagrees 
with you as a racist, bigot, idiot, toothless rube glued to Hannity every night, you are going to have this detachment from reality. And they have it worse than anybody else right now. And Colbert has the brain worms. Everybody has these brain worms. And it seems like that is one of the biggest threats here because they cannot, our leadership cannot have any clarity on any of this. Um, they don't have any clarity on their domestic uh, front, whether it's with us, who they call, who's, I mean, I'm sorry, I have my phone on do not disturb, but <laughs> there we go. The Whether it's a complete disinterest in figuring out what their domestic opponents mean and what actually drives them, which we've seen, everyone, anyone who listens to the Federal Australia Hour is aware of this being typecast. But it goes beyond just us. It's really just any opponent mm -hmm. of what their dreams are. I've heard so many people over the last few weeks say, you know, Putin's a mad dog. And at first, I think like, Putin's gone crazy. And I started, at first, I thought it was like a, an actual serious theory, like Putin had gone crazy in isolation during COVID or he was yes. losing. So I'd ask people like, oh, my gosh, tell me about that. And I said, well, what do you mean? He invaded Ukraine. <laughs> like there are people who are now in Ukraine, in Jeez. Kiev, who have dealt with both Soviet and Nazi occupation mm. of their lands, mm. like who are still alive. Mm -hmm. And like to the modern liberal order, the idea that like some, you know, macho dictator psychopath would just like invade another country means that you must be crazy. Right. It's like, actually, I don't know if that's crazy. It actually this kind of happens around the world in places that are not European. And then I mean, there's no real interest. I think the Federalists have done a good job with this and trying to figure out why. I'm not trying to justify. Yeah. I'm not saying this yeah. is a good dude. I'm not saying he, it's deserved. But hey, maybe it's actually maybe there's some strategic reasons that he wants access to these to these waterways. Mm -hmm. Maybe that he's getting choked off by Hungary or Turkey. Excuse me. Uh, he's getting choked off by the possibility of, of Ukraine becoming a NATO ally. There actually is some calculus in his mind. But just like the writing off Republicans as just deplorables. Yeah. I think there's a big move in D.C. and New York City and L.A. and Europe to write off Putin as a mad dog. You know, you know, he might be evil. Yeah. He might be. He's definitely vicious. But I don't see the evidence yet that he's crazy. And there's just a disinterest in trying to understand our enemies or offer them off ramps to their aggression. And those kind of just it's every every year we have a new war in D.C. I'm older <laughs> and I'm. At this point, older than a lot of some of the policy folks in the Pentagon <laughs> and the same age as a lot of the other people. I'm looking at them and I'm just thinking, just like the federal slogan, consider the possibility that we're led by idiots. And it's really disheartening. As you were talking, I was thinking of two. I was sort of trying to, trying to categorize things, and there were two that stood out to me. One is the utter mediocrity of our elites, meaning that um, if you're sort of raised in the postmodern climate, you are poorly educated, and there's no question about it. You're poorly educated. Truth is relative. You're all over the place, and you just your your worldview is not built on a firm foundation. It's built on a foundation of sand, um, not one of stone. And then on the other hand, they're all clustered in the same areas. So if you combine this postmodern mediocrity with the Charles Murray coming apart trend, you, you have this, uh, this toxic combination of groupthink and terrible think, right? And just mediocre <laughs> Super think. wrong groupthink. And it's well, that's so... not justice. Justice is actually, you know, raising George Floyd from the dead. Yeah, and that's... Or, uh... Oh, of course, you know, there's, there's this difference in here and this difference in that because of uh, historic racism. Mm -hmm. 
or generational atrocity or all these different things that they all take as truth and no one challenges them. AOC is my perfect, the perfect example. Just watch the dumb things that come out of her mouth Mm -hmm. without any semblance of shame. Like sometimes, I mean, any regular listener to the Federalist Radio Hour will know that I say kind of incorrect things every now and then. I at least (laughs) mutter them because maybe halfway through, I'm like, maybe I'm not so sure about this fact. Kind of just like mutter it. She'll just flat out, eyes bulging, declare something like on the floor of Congress. And sometimes they're just, they're just completely false, completely wrong. But no one in her entire, you know, Boston University used to be a good school. Yes. Uh, no one in her entire life ever challenged her. But this is why I think I'm so much less concerned, actually, with AOC being in Congress. Because her being it. in Congress makes perfect sense, right? Like, I love it. The House of Representatives is supposed to literally be representative. And it is. And that means you get Marjorie <laughs> Taylor Greene and you get AOC. And I'm perfectly fine with it because those are the views that should be clashing and should be getting tempered, et cetera, et cetera. But what I'm waiting more concerned about is the fact that there are a million AOCs in human resources departments around the country (laughs) and in classrooms around the country teaching our children. That is way more concerning to me. And I was thinking, um, again, as you were speaking, I talked to Andrew Basevich on the podcast yesterday, who's somebody that I disagree with plenty, uh, but thought his perspective was worthy and interesting enough to have a conversation with. Um, But we were talking about how in this nuclear world, as you as you mentioned, Chris, there are people there are people in the ground in Ukraine right now who have seen so much history, who have seen a century of history in which nuclear technology upended the world, and we sort of think of the Cold War as having. There were no jet planes when they were born. Yeah, it's crazy. Like not remotely. And and we think of the Cold War as sort of decisively, and we think of NATO especially as the bulwark. Like we decisively sort of dealt with the nuclear threat, and NATO is now this bulwark that keeps us uh, safe and happy, et cetera, et cetera. And it's amazing because we are now at this place where our mediocre elites, our armchair um, psychologists to Vladimir Putin, who have no idea what they're talking about. And yet <laughs> nuclear technology puts the entire world at the whims of, of Putin, of North Korea and of the United States, et cetera, et cetera. And nobody knows what's in the minds of anyone. And we act as though we have this all freaking figured out. There was this great tweet, this, this joke by the guy on Twitter, Robbie Sl- uh, Slowick. He says, bittersweet announcement, but after an amazing two years as an infectious disease expert, I'm moving on. I'm now an expert in no-fly zones in Eastern European affairs. Oh, I was going to mention that tweet, too. Excited to make the most of this new opportunity. (laughs) (laughs) It's a perfect tweet because it's like we have this punditocracy where everyone thinks they're or and sort of necessarily has to be an expert in everything. I had to I had to live through like maybe nine months or a year or something after working next to doing entertainment slideshows of the Daily Caller, watching a CNN reporter explain to me why Donald Trump saying NATO should contribute to the alliance is undermining global security. I'm <laughs> just giggling to myself, thinking, gosh, you're just you're not a smart person. What the heck, what the heck are you talking about? Who told you this? Where did you, and, and just the, the I wasn't there, so I'm not rendering a judgment. <laughs> the smug self-assuredness of so much of our pundit class and what their expertise is in and what's coming next. And like we were talking about uh, near the beginning of the podcast, what I don't think people are realizing that I'm starting to really think is that this is not we're not going to look back and say this is the year of COVID or this was like the two year COVID period. It's going to be. Things are coming undone. Mm-hmm. Things are things. It's a widening gyre here, and the inflation, the gas prices, the breakdown of the liberal order. Conservative people all across the country suddenly kind of waking up and realizing 
our elites and our rulers are not legitimate. Don't really have like a moral right to rule us because they hate us. Yeah. Uh, that that's a day which is a dangerous and very true awakening, in my opinion. The the breakup of our economy, the end of the free internet, the growth of a second economy that mm. you know we're doing at Right Forge, the war in Europe, the internet being politicized potentially not just and weaponized across the planet. I think we are witnessing the church is being closed. It's just the craziest thing in the world to me. We're witnessing such an unraveling of the West where I don't know if it's going to get this far, but you can count the death knells of the West, modern West and, and world war one. And like maybe like the Titanic and then mm-hmm. world war one with mm-hmm. the first stops of like, hold on a second. Maybe the March tour, maybe the March is not just uninterrupted toward progress and battle. And then world war two, which was the result of that disaster and like the, the kind of the West slitting its wrists in World War One, at the 60s. And now we're reaping the fruits of the 60s where those pathetic, spoiled, rotten yes. children are yes. now in the positions of power and the positions that we need them to be defending us and defending our civilization. And they won't because they're against it. Well, think of Chesa Boudin in San Francisco, literally the child of weather underground activists yeah. who is ruining the city directly directly as a response to his policies. Well, Democratic politicians cheer it on until until the voters say no. I mean, I think we're I think we're in another phase right now. And actually, not just like not not the slow decline that Merle Haggard sings about and that we all kind of feel sometimes that Reagan kind of knocked us out of previously with some American optimism. Not that slow loosening of standards, but I think like a really rapid uh, danger we're having here. Yeah, it feels it feels like that. I hope not. I pray not. And the good news is, as my priest Monsignor Pope says, um, it seems tempting to want to join the other side. It seems like we're losing all the time. But here's the secret. We know the end of the book. Mm. We've got the end of the book. Empires do rise and fall. Um, We've had saints who've lived through the collapse of the Holy Roman Empire. St. Augustine, I think. I could be wrong on that. (laughs) Speaking of the punditocracy. Right? Yeah. (laughs) But we, we are, and that was a much older empire than we have. We know the end of the book, but I do think this is going to be more than just a side note. This is going to be a serious chapter in in West. And th- another good news is another good thing is that a lot more people are waking up. Yeah, I think that's true. And that's good. But can, but and we talk about this all the time. It's a race against the clock. Can can people wake up before it becomes impossible to sort of dig out of it um, relatively peacefully? Our, our politicians won't. So I mean, yeah. Imagine if our politicians could go out there and talk as confidently and as assuredly and as much time on television about abortion, about marriage, about the breakdown of the family, about crime, about the border, as they do about freaking Ukraine. Yep. Uh, every single congressman and senator, who by the way, majority need literally need well, at least congressmen need like crayons and paper to explain things to them <laughs> now out there explaining to us about how we're going to go to war and no fly zones and stuff i just wish they had that confidence to talk about the war that's here at home on our continent against our people by our elites the people are waking up but it's still going to take a little bit of time to get the gop the mitch mcconnell's and other scumbags to wake up yeah and i'll just close by um or, or we'll wind with some today it is i, I feel very like literally it's, it's sober <laughs> <laughs> I feel like actually what we should have been doing is just like ripping shots of vodka 
<laughs> it is a joyless liquor for joyless people. Yes. Um, so uh, winding the conversation down, the liberal order, I think, has actually um, been a, and this is what is a, a huge topic of debate, but I do think it has been a, a net benefit and an incredible blessing for humanity um, in in the years since Ronald Reagan. I think it, it what what we saw, and I know that people would, would say very differently about Iraq and Afghanistan, and I think this can still be true while admitting that there were huge mistakes made on the part of the United States, but that's what's so tragic about this, is that the liberal order is now in the hands of absolute morons um, who are untethered from reality, are untethered from virtue and morality, and have the tools of nuclear technology at their disposal, and are the United States so utterly bungled its response to COVID that nobody's even talking about this. The United States has not held China accountable for its role in a global pandemic. We held the Olympics there. Absolutely. Nobody has. And so why do you think Vladimir Putin feels emboldened? It's because the West is feckless and it is toothless and is so weak right now. It's Western not- leaders, European leaders say, come, we must defend the West. I'm getting I'm getting whiplash. I thought the West was patriarchal and and, and homophobic and racist. Well, we, I thought we, the West was evil. When when we had an opportunity to really take a stand against what had what what had come out of Wuhan, China, we were mired in an internal debate about whether it was racist to call the freaking virus the Wuhan virus. I mean, that's what we were talking the about. Wu that flu. is how decadent we are. That was the controversy du jour. We talked a lot about decadence in the last two years. Yeah. Well. The two years it took me to read the 30 Years War. <laughs> yes. Speaking of decadent, Christmas, <laughs> in a, presumably in his armchair every night with a glass of scotch, working his way through the history of the 30 Years War. Not wrong. <laughs> yes. Not wrong. With his Russian cat at his side. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I mean, I, I see all the people uh, on the internet dumping out their Tito's vodka to fight Putin. I'm <laughs> just looking at the Russian blue cat thinking... <laughs> Sorry, buddy. I'm going to have to turn you into one of those Russian hats. <laughs> <laughs> Your time is up, Buster. Uh, you know, I'm not I'm not going to cheer on the collapse of the liberal order of the West because I think that uh, it was uh, at least for a while, um, although it's a relatively small period of time know. in the scope of human history. a lot of plastic, a lot of materialism, a lot of atheism. Yeah. No, I don't disagree with that at all. I don't disague with that the at Solzhenitsyn all. The Solzhenitsyn speech at Harvard should be just required reading uh, during the Cold War when he went to give a commencement speech there. Yes, And everyone's is, expecting yes. him to pat us in the back and say, everything's good. And he said, I would rather live in Russia than in the United States because in Russia we have soul, spirit, religion, and God. What do you have? Yeah. And people are just sitting there silently. You don't hear commencement speeches like that very often anymore. Yeah. And it's just... it's. Not wrong. Well, that's that is not my perspective at all. But I do think it's a very important and interesting read. Um, I I think the price of freedom is invaluable. Um, but on that note, <laughs> a happy note, Chris. Should we go take Sultan some vodka shots? Yeah, actually, let's do it. Just to upset. Uh, <laughs> well, you could. It would be great to do it in front of your cat. <laughs> Just sort of <laughs> he's watching, supervising. I'll have to make some uh, Russia-Ukraine drinks for for my piece tomorrow morning. Oh my gosh. <laughs> well, we appreciate everybody listening, um, and I do think on that note, one of the best. Uh, one of the best things, one of the best ways for journalists to serve the public right now is to be open about what they don't when they have no idea what the hell they're talking about. I think more of these brave journalists who always thought they were basically war correspondents because Trump was mean to them should all go to Ukraine. <laughs> Here's your chance. Show you brave. Put down the mimosa. Yeah. Go to Ukraine. Show us. You're uh, free now. Show us how precious and important and beautiful the West is to you. Yeah. And show us the journalism. All these guys wearing those T-shirts that their lives were under threat. 
because they got mean DMs. Meanwhile, there are actual war correspondents or actual reporters in Mexico being gunned down by cartels. Mm-hmm. And you'd think the D.C. press corps was so brave. My gosh, this is an opportunity. We should start a Give, Send, Go or a GoFundMe <laughs> to send Brian Stelter and all of his friends to go cover the war from the front lines. <laughs> we get so much more coverage about how the war is felt by all Ukrainians, but especially by the trans community. <laughs> what did the CBS actually put out that article? Yeah, no, you can't even do fiction anymore. You can't even do it. It's a satire. They're driving the onion out of business. <laughs> yes. Oh, well, Chris, thank you so much for your time today. Let's go do a shot. Yes. You've been listening to another edition of the Federalist Radio Hour. I'm Emily Jashinsky, culture editor here at the Federalist. We'll be back soon with more. Until then, be lovers of freedom and anxious for the fray. Reason, and then it faded.